I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Centre for Policy Studies, I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx, and today we've got a special episode about tax. Uh, Joining me is our deputy editor, Alice Denby. Alice, welcome. Hello. And given that it's about tax, who better than our head of tax from the Centre for Policy Studies, and head of policy, I should add, um, Tom Clockety. Tom, welcome back to the podcast. I think this is your third or fourth appearance. Good to have you back. Well, I'm I'm surprised you keep inviting me, but thank you. (laughs) We've, it's been a, an interesting time for students of the British economy, of which tax is obviously a huge part. Jeremy Hunt gave a big speech uh, Friday last week saying that he wants the UK to have the most competitive tax system in the world, mm. all the while his government is about to remove the super deduction, um, which we'll come on to, and raise corporation tax by six percentage points. So whether or not his ambition lines up with what his government is actually doing is a bit of a moot point. Um, But Tom, let's start with you. I mean, what do you think are the big weaknesses weaknesses in our current uh, system, looking at the UK overall? It's a big question. Um, And actually, there are plenty of weaknesses that you can point to in almost every different area of tax. Um, We have aspects of the UK tax system which just aren't what they ought to be. So look at corporation tax, for example. We've traditionally had a pretty low and competitive rate internationally. Uh, But the way that we treat corporate investment within the tax system has been very stingy by international standards. Uh, And that's probably reflected in very low levels of business investment in the UK compared with other big economies. you know, I don't think we do terribly on income taxes. We're sort of at the lower end of average as far as big country income tax systems go. Um, the very top rate probably is too high. Um, that's one thing that the short-lived trust government perhaps got right ideologically, even if uh, practically and politically it got them into an awful lot of trouble trying to abolish that additional rate. Um, I think also there's a little too much complexity in capital gains tax, and our dividend tax rates, frankly, are too high, given that that's a stream of income that has already been taxed at the corporate level. Property taxes, maybe I should have started here, because I think our property tax system is one of the worst of any developed country in the world. Um, Compared with most countries, we raise an awful lot of money from taxing property. Um, That in itself isn't necessarily a bad thing because property taxes can be structured 
in an efficient and relatively pro-growth way. Uh, but we don't do that. We don't even get close to doing it. Um, we raise huge amounts of money from business rates, which again, discourage businesses to invest in their property. Um, we also get a lot of money from stamp duties, um, which gum up the housing market. And you know, it's one of those things that practically every economist in the world from left or right would agree on, um, that you don't tax transactions. You especially don't tra tax transactions uh, in a market like housing, um, where you've got massive undersupply and efficient allocation as a result is extremely important. Um, I'm going on a bit. Let me just say consumption taxes. So I've covered the four big areas of, of domestic tax. Um, our consumption tax system leaves a lot to be desired. And now something like VAT can be a very welcome part of the tax system because it can raise a lot of money in a relatively economically efficient way. And when I say economically efficient, I mean that it doesn't really um, distort people's behavior. It doesn't distort people's decisions to save and to invest and work and so on. At least it doesn't do that as much as all the other taxes do. Um, however, we have one of the holiest, and I don't mean religious, I mean like a block of Swiss cheese, uh, VAT systems in the world. There's hardly any other country that has as many reduced rates, exemptions, zero rates, or as high a threshold um, for registering for VAT as we do. Um, that causes problems of its own. Uh, I think we've probably all seen that chart going around on social media. I say we've all seen it. Everyone who's into tax has seen it, um, of the way that firm registrations in Britain cluster just yeah, under the VAT yeah. registration threshold. That's a massive what, distortion. Two grand or something. It's like around eighty-five thousand. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. You, you may be more accurate than me. <laughs> um, and then the other thing, of course, is that um, by having all these reduced rates, exemptions, zero rates, um, you're raising a lot less tax. You're distorting people's choices between. Different, uh, different things to consume. Um, and equally, even if you're trying to do that to help the poorest, um, you're actually doing it in an incredibly uh, ineffective way. If you want poor people to be better able to afford food or children's clothes, much better to give them money to afford food or children's clothes than to give everyone in the country a reduced rate of VAT on those things. Um, so there you go. That's a bit of a whistle-stop tour, and I hope that I haven't... Uh, led to a massive drop-off in listenership already by running through all those different tax problems we have. I think what I wanted to sort of like zoom out a bit as a, as a non-economist, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's easy, it's tempting to think that, like, low taxes are always going to be good or always pro-growth, but that's not exactly right, is it? That there, there, there are different ways to direct taxes in more or less distorting ways. Perhaps we should sort of go back to basics and, like, what are the good taxes and what are the bad ones? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you raise a really important point there. Um, and while it's true that if you had two perfectly structured tax systems, one of which taxed very heavily and one of which taxed very lightly, of course, you'd prefer the one that taxed very lightly. Um, but that's not really the world we live in. Um, and you can take countries with exactly the same levels of tax revenue, um, and the quality of their tax system can vary quite remarkably from one to another. Um, and so a good example of this that I've mentioned on CapEx recently is that Estonia is widely held up as a sort of one of the ideal tax systems around the world. Uh, in the Tax Foundation's International Tax Competitiveness Index, uh, they rank first. They've ranked first for many years now. Um, Britain raises exactly the same amount of revenue, more or less, as a percentage of GDP. Um, but we're 
26th on those rankings, and we're slipping. We're slipping fast. Uh, I think we're going to end up pretty close to the bottom of the rankings in every category except cross-border tax rules um, once the corporation tax rate goes up and the super deduction expires. Um, so what, what, are, what are the big differences here? Um, a lot of it is to do with where you place your emphasis in the tax system because there's kind of a hierarchy of how badly taxes affect growth, how much they distort behavior. Uh, and so I, I mentioned stamp duties. Taxes on transactions are a really bad idea. As I said, pretty much everyone agrees you should just shouldn't do it because of the way it messes up markets. Um, but if you look at the, the bigger buckets of tax, um, the research suggests that taxes on corporate profits are kind of the worst tax when it comes to GDP per capita. Personal income taxes are bad, not quite as bad. Heading down in the other direction, consumption taxes actually are pretty good if they're structured well. They can generate a lot of revenue um, without, uh, you know, without without distorting the economy. Um, and then actually, economists tend to think the best form of tax is a very simple recurring tax on property, something like a land value tax. This is the Georgian or Georgist rather, isn't it? <laughs> Georgist right. land tax. Ex exactly. It's very popular on, the, exactly. on social media. And, and I don't want to sort of go down a rabbit hole there because I think, you know, the arguments around land value tax to me probably changed an awful lot since Henry George's day, even if you sort of regard him as true when is he was right. Sort of the 1890s or something. Right, exactly. So I think if you were, if you were trying to fund an extremely small state a sort of Victorian-sized state providing very few services, it might be quite realistic to have a single tax, as they talked about in those days, which was just on unimproved land values, and that could, that could sort of fund everything. But I think realistically, because you know, people who own, own a house or, or own you know, a field or something, it isn't necessarily generating a revenue stream. There is a limit as to actually how much tax you can practically extract um, from land value. So it's it's a useful bit of the tax system. Um, and if we reformed our property taxes in that direction, it would certainly be a good thing. But I don't see us in the UK being able to raise more particularly from property taxes than we raise at the moment. We could just raise it better. I think where there is an opportunity for a very positive shift, though, um, is towards consumption and uh, towards a consumption tax base. And I mean that in, in two ways, I suppose. Firstly, we could make our VAT much more efficient by making it broader based. Um, you know, I, 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 if our VAT base was as broad as Estonia's, just to use them as an example again, they also have a 20% VAT rate, um, but they apply it to most goods and services and it kicks in at a lower threshold. Um, that would raise about £75 billion a year in the UK. And that would be enough to do just about everything else that's on the free market wish list <laughs> in the rest of the tax system. It would have distributional consequences, which I think you would have to try and address at the same time. But I think the other point I want to make about shifting towards a consumption tax base, and I should probably say a bit afterwards about why exactly that's a good thing, um, but you can turn business taxes and personal income taxes into effectively a kind of consumption tax anyway. Um, if you have a corporation tax that allows businesses to deduct all of their investment costs up front, um, Basically, then what you're doing is taxing their income uh, minus their expenditure, which is in effect their consumption. It's the money that they as a corporation are paying out to their shareholders. Um, equally, 
an income tax um, where, for example, uh, either you could you had no limits on your ISA. You could put as much money as you wanted in there and then the taxman never touched it again. That would effectively be a consumption tax applied to your income. Equally, if it all worked on a pension model where you put money into some sort of pot and you got tax relief on the money that went in and then you could invest, you could make money and everything over the years. But then when you withdrew the money to spend it, you would get taxed at the normal marginal rate. That would effectively be an income tax structured as a consumption tax as well. And so why is a consumption tax good? This is probably where I should have started instead of where I should, should have finished. Um, but a consumption tax fundamentally is good because it does not distort your decision making between immediate consumption and future consumption, which is a poncy way of saying um, it, doesn't, it doesn't deter investment. It doesn't distort decisions about spending and saving. Um, you know, basically, we have a system which double taxes or triple taxes or quadruple taxes income. So every time you, you, you've got a bit of money, the taxman takes another slice. And that can add up in complicated and unpredictable ways, um, such that a given bit of income could be taxed very, very heavily. Um, whereas if you just try and focus on taxing consumption, however you're going to do it, um, you have a much simpler and much more pro-growth tax system. One thing I wanted to ask about this. So, so last week we uh, spoke to Christopher Snowden and, and he's particularly no fan of kind of sin taxes, which are another kind of consumption mm. tax, right? And we talked quite a lot about how um, things like minimum alcohol pricing or the sugar tax um, don't work and it's very difficult to predict a consumer's behaviour. Mm. Um, so I guess I just wanted to say how, how you kind of square those two kind of slightly competing free market <laughs> ideas. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I think actually we're, we'd be more or less on the same page, um, at least at a, a level of principle, because um, excise duties, the kind of thing you're talking about, are kind of the opposite of the broad-based consumption tax that I'm advocating. Um, so something like VAT just applies at the same rate to all goods and services, or at least it, it, it should in an idealized world. And there are no value judgments made between are you discouraging people to consume this product? Are you encouraging them to consume that product? Um, and that, this is a, a sort of a general example of where having a broad tax base and, and possibly a low tax rate is very sensible, very straightforward. Um, and government is then out of the business of trying to steer people's behavior. Now, that's not to say that the government shouldn't sometimes uh, be in that business. Um, you know, there probably are good reasons to have sin taxes of some sort on some product um, or activities when there's a very clear externality um, that you would want people to price in. Um, so, for example, the burden that smokers place on the National Health Service, I think probably uh, you know, it, it, it makes acceptable some kind of tax on cigarettes. However, it wouldn't make a tax on cigarettes at the level we currently apply it reasonable. Um, similarly, fuel duty, uh, traditionally a somewhat effective way of taxing people for their road use. And road use, of course, has all kinds of externalities, both wear and tear on the road, air pollution, climate change, congestion, lots of economic costs associated with that, which if you didn't tax driving in some way, um, you know, you would have no way of reflecting, you'd have no way of steering people's behavior. Um, of course, fuel duty is becoming a lot less effective 
uh, with the rise of electric vehicles and so on. And, and so you might want to look at a different way of taxing driving, like dedicated road pricing. But that's probably going off down another rabbit hole. My point is, <laughs> simple broad-based consumption taxes are good. There's a limited case for the more narrow targeted things. But Chris is, Chris is fundamentally right that we overdo it and we use them as stealth taxes in this country. Easy ways to raise revenue without a coherent underlying economic rationale. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So Tom, we've had lots of lovely, crisp kind of theoretical explanations about why some taxes are good, some are bad. I just want to get into the kind of nitty-gritty of some of the more absurd parts of our own tax system. And I don't think it's that, you know, any one official has designed this from on high, but over the years, we've ended up with some really quite bizarre things, particularly in the world of kind of confectionery and takeaway goods and things like this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, there's the classic case of whether a Jaffa cake is a cake or a biscuit. Um, and I believe this one went to court and it, it was decided on the basis that a Jaffa cake goes sort of stiff and dry um, when it's right. stale. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas a biscuit, so hence it's a cake, whereas a biscuit would go soggy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and the reason this matters um, is because biscuits are subject uh, to VAT at the standard rate um, and cakes are not. Um, and yeah, if you, if you explore confectionery. Alice is just really looking very confused. <laughs> I was just thinking, like, how is a cake a health food? <laughs> I know, I know, it's extraordinary. And, and actually, if you look into the taxation of flapjacks um, and then how that relates to sort of modern takes on the flapjack, like the energy bar, for example, um, again, you can, you can discern no coherent rationale underlying the tax system, but these weird distinctions having to be drawn because of the complex way the tax code has been drawn up. Um, but, you know, another good example, uh, and I, I take this from a, a former tax lawyer and, and, and author for the CPS, David Martin. Um, yeah, he points out that a gingerbread man, a gingerbread man with chocolate eyes and a chocolate mouth would be standard rated for VAT. However, if the gingerbread man had only chocolate eyes, no chocolate mouth, 
he would be zero rated for VAT. Um, And there's all kinds of things like that. Um, Chocolate's a particular example um, of how you use it uh, can determine its tax treatment. And that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Of course, the apogee of this was, we're coming up to, I think it it was 10 years ago, maybe 11 years ago, but was the the so-called omni-shambles budget. And we had this thing of the pasty tax and you had... Ed Balls and Ed Miliband going into Greg's to order eight sausage rolls, which I thought was another great. So I think the rule there is something to do with if it's heated to be taken away or from the premises or something. Yeah, no, it, 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 it's an extraordinary mess. Um, but actually, it's good that you raised the Omni Shambles budget because it does point to the political practicalities of all of this. Um, that however stupid your tax system, however lacking in coherent design, Changing it can be quite difficult because people are used to the situation as it pertains. Um, And, you know, I mentioned earlier, um, you know, zero rating on children's clothes and a lot of food products, for example. If a politician just stood up and said, I'm getting rid of that, there'd be uproar. Um, And you can understand why, (laughs) I think. Uh, And so there's a degree of path dependency in the tax system. Um, and I think it tends to get worse and worse over time unless there is a concerted effort um, to try and reform it. But equally, I think the Omni Shambles budget points to something quite important to tax reformers, um, is that it's very much easier to try and reform the tax system as a whole than it is to fiddle around with individual pieces. Because if you're reforming the tax system overall, if you're, okay, maybe you can't quite start with a blank sheet of paper, but intellectually, that that I think should be the exercise. How should we tax, not how can we tweak the tax system as it exists today? Um, Then you can come up with a different type of tax system which tries to smooth out the winners and the losers, right? Um, And has a more coherent effect on the population at large. If it's just about charging someone more for a warm pasty and that person is someone who loves warm pasties, um, they're going to be upset with you and with some justification. Are there any countries that have done this kind of wholesale tax reform you're talking about, a sort of rip it up and start again approach? Has that ever worked? I think it's a question I should have a better answer for. And there's probably I should do a little bit more research on that front at different historical examples from around the world. But certainly um, people talk very highly of sort of Central and Eastern European countries and the tax systems that they've adopted post-communism. Obviously, some are better than others, and most of them are a mix. Um, but generally speaking, they have kind of taken a principles-based approach um, of the kind that I'm outlining. And they've got quite strong competitive tax systems as a result. I think the tax reform was a big part of the sort of Reagan and Thatcher reforms as well. It wasn't quite as big bang as I'm suggesting. But, you know, for example, the last very significant tax reform we had in this country was in 1988, um, Lawson's famous budget then. Um, New Zealand is always a good example for a lot of these things. Um, As I understand it, in the four years from 84 to 90, um, and this was after Roger Douglas, a Labour finance minister, Um, by the way, did a massive uh, program of liberalisation of the New Zealand economy. Um, It included massively cutting income taxes and abolishing their sort of complicated sales tax that they had before replacing it with a very straightforward VAT. Um, Their GDP per capita doubled in about six years. Uh, I'm getting that off Wikipedia, so you can 
blame Jimmy Wales if I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> but I think that, again, is a pretty good example. Clearly, it was part of a wider program. So you can't say, look, taxes did that. But I think taxes play a part and they could play a part again. I just want to ask a kind of principled question, if you like. One of the critiques I've seen recently from a fellow think tanker, actually, is that we probably, that people like us or other, you know, and other think tanks talk too much about tax and put too much stock in it. And when really the issues holding back the British economy are things like infrastructure and mm. skills and those things, particularly when it comes to if a business is deciding whether or not to come here. I mean, what's your thought on that? My point, my thought is we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We have an entire ministry doing tax. We have an education department. You know, I don't see yeah. why the things are mutually exclusive. Mm. No, they're certainly not mutually exclusive. And look, I mean, tax is my area, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's the only area that matters um, or even the most important area. You know, I think, for example, in the UK, liberalising our land use planning system um, allowing more houses to be built where people want to live and work, um, letting businesses build the facilities they need in you know the right areas economically, um, that would probably have a much bigger impact on GDP than anything that I could dream up for the tax system. Um, but as you say, why not both? Why or why not all of it? If there if there's a genuine case that these things promote growth, and sometimes I think things are proposed in the name of growth that probably wouldn't have an awful lot of impact anyway. Um, but if there are good ideas, let's let's pursue all of them. Um, the other thing I would say though is that, and this is this is one of the reasons why I think a tax is interesting, and b um, why a lot of think tank people all sort of circle around tax, even if tax isn't necessarily their speciality. It's because it feeds into pretty much every single other policy area, right? It's it's how the government gets its money. Uh, it has huge impacts on behaviour, um, on the performance of different sectors of the economy, and so on. Um, and, you know, I've sometimes sort of joked internally working at a think tank that, okay, I'm the head of tax, but... Um, we publish things with recommendations on tax in every other area of policy as well, whether it's skills, um, whether it's housing, um, <laughs> you know. So um, it, it it's it's there across the piece, um, and I think it's basically it's one of those fundamental things that we can get right, that we should get right, um, and then we can work on everything else as well. And it need not be that complicated. You know, there are really, really hard questions to answer about, like, how do you organise social care in, a, in an ageing population? Really yeah. difficult. There's no straightforward answer. Um, whereas with the tax system, you, we pretty much know what kind of taxes are efficient, which ones are harmful to the economy. Obviously, there are political trade-offs and there are questions of fairness that you have to address as well. Um, but at the same time, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. No, I just I think briefly on that point about fairness, I think something that we get perhaps get too hung up on, particularly the kind of IFS briefing model of tax is looking at every individual measure and how redistributive it is rather than looking a at the whole system and b what you actually spend the money on. Because that to <laughs> me strikes me as more important what you do with the money you raised as or a part of the equation that is uh you know underlooked. No, no, absolutely. I think I think that's entirely right. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I think that we've we've overdone it in this country in our public and economic debate 
with the focus on distributional analysis. Um, distribution analysis is a useful tool. You want to know who is benefiting and who isn't um, from your policy changes. As you say, though, it's very artificial to always look at that for every individual policy change rather than trying to assess the system as a whole. Equally, though, I think there's a real problem, um, and it, it, it's, it's an intellectual dead end, to sort of make the test of every policy what does this do for the poorest 10% or the poorest 20%? Um, it's important to try and help those people, but that shouldn't be the sole end of public policy. And if you do make it the sole end of public policy and you rule out doing anything that doesn't fit into that particular framing, um, it's very hard to do a lot of pro-growth stuff, um, which actually could have an enormous impact on the living standards of people throughout the income spectrum, but particularly at the bottom, um, in the long run. Equally, that's not to say that I think kind of growth maximization should necessarily be the sole purpose of the tax system. Um, you know, the tax system shouldn't really be something that's dreamed up in an economist's laboratory with no concern um, for, for, you know, the citizenry. Um, but I think that there's a different way of thinking about fairness, in the tax system. Um, you can think of fairness in terms of, yeah, is it worth people's while to work? Um, are they rewarded for doing the right thing? Or do they face punitive marginal tax rates um, if they're trying to get a new job um, or, or get back into work um, or increase their salary or whatever? And there are a lot of places in the tax system where that just isn't right at the moment, where we discourage people from doing the right thing in a significant way. Um, Equally, I think you can look at how families are treated in our tax system. Um, we're kind of unusual in our benefit system. is focused on households. Our tax system is all about individuals, which means that families or households with the same total income can be taxed completely differently depending on how that income is distributed between the partners. So you want to, you basically, your ideal is to be two people on 49 grand a year or something. Yeah, I mean, that that's sort of maximising for, yeah, um, for the quirks in the British tax system at the moment, certainly. I mean, one of the things I wanted to talk about was kind of fairness and morality in the tax systems. We've talked about people kind of at the bottom of the scale, but we've had kind of high profile examples of people um, at the very top end um, avoiding paying their tax. Mm. Um and I wonder if you think that that is a consequence of failures in the tax system. Is it that, that it, it allows for these complicated ways for wealthy people to avoid their taxes? Or is, it, or is that actually bad faith actors? Um, I think that there's a, a combination of both, certainly. Um, I'm not in a position to comment on any individual cases, <laughs> even the very high profile ones that have, have gone on recently. Um, but, you know, there will always be treat people who try to take advantage um, of the system. Equally, though, uh, there is a huge role for tax design um, in making that not happen or happen less. Um, and, and frankly, the simpler your tax system is, um, the better. Because you don't have all of those loopholes. Uh, I mean, if, if you basically have a tax system which is just taxing the money that you spend in the UK for example. And that's kind of the goal, I think, um, from a pro-growth perspective, um, because then you're not 
you know, levying a tax burden on investment and savings. You're not eating the seed corn that provides future growth. You're just taxing its eventual outcome, which is people spending their money on, on whatever they want to spend it on. Um, that's much harder tax to avoid um, than if you have all of these complex rules around, um, you know, different and offshores and, and domiciles yeah. and trusts and different forms of income and everything. And one of the big things is that a lot of the complexity in the tax system, I mean, some of it comes just from, from negligence or, or from people having bad ideas. A lot of it is well-intentioned because people will look at the tax system and realize, oh, you know what, this this actually is is discouraging investment. We need to put some kind of loophole in there to encourage investment or maybe to encourage investment in this particular area or this particular industry, some kind of credit or allowance. Um and those things accrue over time, each individually well-intentioned, each individually an opportunity for people to try and game the tax system. Um, and eventually you've got so much of this stuff, you just can't keep track of it. You need to pay very intelligent lawyers huge sums of money um, to optimize your tax affairs for you if you're a, a you know, super rich person or a multinational business. Uh, and that's not a great situation to be in. And Tom, as you say, it's, it's a vast, complicated stuff and politicians have to deal with political imperatives as well as economic ones. So, you know, the Chancellor, whoever it is, can't do everything. But in your recent piece for CapEx, you outlined a few, four mm. reforms that you would like to see, which you think are feasible. Could you just very briskly, to finish off, what would you like to see that you think is feasible politically yeah. over the next couple of years, say? Um, well, so not to redirect your question too much, but I think, <laughs> sorry, yeah, but this is like Ed Miliband. If what you're asking me is, yeah. no, this. sorry, John. Yeah. Uh, but so I think actually, um, the two big things, if you're looking short term, is probably a little narrower than what I put in that piece. Okay. Um, so in, in the piece for CapEx, I was basically, you know, Jeremy Hunt said last week, I want Britain to have the most competitive tax system of every large economy. I was saying, you know, let's say any large economy means the G7. Um, let's say we measure competitiveness using the Tax Foundation's International Tax Competitiveness Index. Um, basically, here are four things we could do, one on corporate, one on personal, one on consumption, one on property taxes, um, that would leap us up those rankings, put us ahead of Germany, um, and, and do the trick at making us the most so, competitive. But that's quite an arbitrary way of doing it, isn't it? Yeah. It, it? I mean, it's slightly arbitrary. And for example, it included abolishing the additional rate of income tax. Um, now, we yeah. tried that in September and, and, you know, I don't think that was really what was at fault, but there's problems ensued, It's not going to so happen. We're not going to go there. Yeah. I, but, so one of the things that was in my four um, was moving towards full expensing, which is basically, you can get very complicated about this, but it is, as I said earlier, just letting businesses, uh, taxing businesses on the difference between their income and their expenditure, whether that expenditure is capital, current, whatever. It doesn't matter if it's a digger or a paperclip for tax purposes, just treat it the same way. You get rid of the bias against investment in our corporate tax system. That could have a huge impact on growth. And best of all, this is something that the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, um, you know, it's an idea he's well acquainted with. When he was Chancellor, he launched a consultation on ways you could move in this direction. Um, and indeed, with the super deduction, with, which is expiring um, in April, as things stand, um, but that shows that he kind of knew what to do. It's just unfortunate he did it on a temporary basis rather than a 
permanent one. But I think progress in that area would be a good thing. Okay, so full expensing is number one. And then I think the other one, and again, it's something where Rishi Sunak got it right temporarily, but then unfortunately reverted, uh, and that was stamp duty. Yeah, we had the stamp duty holiday for properties under 500,000 during the pandemic. Um, and, well, okay, the problem with that was that it massively juiced the property market because everyone was rushing to get their transactions over the line before the holiday expired. But if that was a permanent change, you would take most properties around the country out of stamp duty altogether. You would have a much better functioning property market overall. And again, this is something that clearly people in the government understand the case for because they did it on a temporary basis. I think they should do it permanently. All right. Um, I would also like to see a massive reform of the whole way we buy and sell houses so it's quicker and has less outrageous fees to estate agents. But I think that's probably the subject of a whole different episode. And, and, a, and a whole different CPS uh, research project, actually, Absolutely. John, My so. Abolish Estate Agents campaign is I mean, uh, that, That's up. not what we're calling it. <laughs> no. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for joining us, as ever. A very enlightening and uh, eloquent summary of where we are. And I do hope that any MPs ministers, policymakers, or other policy wonks listening will take them on board. Uh, thank you all at home as ever for listening to the CapEx podcast. Do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts or just by old-fashioned word of mouth to any friends who you think might enjoy it. And do tune in next week for another episode of the CapEx podcast. Mm-hmm.